BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On Monday, August 19th, 2019, the man convicted in the death and disappearance of Carrie Olson was reaffirmed to stay in prison. The third district appellate court ruling in favor of keeping Timothy McVeigh behind bars until 2054. And since this new development this week, I felt it would be best to take a look back at everything that happened in this case. And because it is so recent, you will hear a lot more sound from the friends and family and even the trial because News 8 covered it so closely. Tribune Audio Network. The crimes that made your skin crawl. The missing faces you just couldn't get out of your head. The questions that never got answered. Missing and Murdered in the Midwest dives deep into these unforgettable cases, solved and unsolved. This content is not for the faint of heart. And now, here's your host, Toria Wilson. The disappearance and death of Carrie is the most recent case that rocked and, quite frankly, shocked the Quad City area. Two days after Christmas and just before the start of 2014, Carrie was last seen on surveillance cameras at a 7-Eleven along 18th Avenue in Rock Island. Her car was seen the next day at the same gas station by a man described as a friend of Carrie's. Carrie's father said he knew something wasn't right the day before New Year's. He owned a local shop called Dave's Floor Trends in Davenport, and Carrie worked there as well. But during the morning meeting that day, Carrie's father didn't see her, which was bizarre. And then I was trying to find out where she was. She was sick or whatever for the day. And nowhere to be found. So we started doing a little investigation, and uh, um, all of a sudden, nobody knew where she was at. It, there's something wrong. But we don't know what. Two days later, a Facebook page was created called Find Carrie Olson to help friends and family share information to not only themselves, but to the community. The first post stated her cell phone sent a signal from Camden Park in Milan. It asked to keep alert on trails and parks for anything unusual, near the rivers or even near the woods. January 3rd, dozens of volunteers walked through single-digit temperatures and at least a foot of snow, searching for clues at Blackhawk State Historic Park and Credit Island. Others were seen passing out informational flyers about Carrie. At this point, though, in the investigation, per our articles, Danport Police had not officially put out a missing persons report but stated in that early January that the investigation was ongoing. One day later, after that report, police did list Carrie as a missing person and asked the public for help, but dangerous cold weather hindered any search parties from venturing out. Police later justified their actions by saying it's not that simple. It has to be proven that a person is officially missing. Laying out the definition, Assistant Chief John Schaefer telling News 8 that if they don't follow those guidelines, they could potentially face a lawsuit. An individual has that right to do whatever they want to do, um, and uh, you're violating that right if you report them as missing. If it's voluntary and they're in good health and not harming themselves or anybody else or endangering themselves, you have to honor that. 
But waiting is a dangerous game to be played when it comes to the missing, and we've seen that play out already in this podcast once before. And you'll see it again, time and time again, as we cover missing cases. I can assure you, you know, on every case, we take them serious. Nearly one month after Carrie was reported missing, it almost seemed like a disheartening break in the case. A body was found in Davenport Centennial Park. Initial information indicated that the body was of a woman. That afternoon, the park was blocked off, and police and even the county coroner came to investigate. But shortly after that investigation began, the Quad City Missing Persons Network and the Find Carrie Olson Facebook page posted that it was not, in fact, Carrie Olson. And as we inch closer into the one-month mark since Carrie was last seen, there was already a renewed effort to find her. The family put up a $1,000 reward to try to find information. Friends and family had already searched all the local parks with no luck. We've kind of exhausted a lot of resources and want to try another avenue. So a Chicago-based group called Canine Specialties drove to the Quad Cities, immediately meeting with the family at their store and began their search efforts. One of the team's members said to News 8 that there was something about this case that really grabbed him. When you see a family grieving like this over their missing child, it hits you. The team did not charge the family for their services and stayed through the weekend trying to find answers for the Olsons, but ultimately turned up nothing. And that didn't stop the family, though. Nearing the two-month mark of her disappearance, the search went door-to-door in the Quad Cities. Volunteers came out, putting teal wristbands on and picking up piles of flyers to distribute around Milan, where her cell phone was last signaled, as we said before, but again, no sight of her. A candlelight prayer vigil was then held on February 23rd, and around this time, billboards were posted around town. That $1,000 reward that the family had posted became $10,000, thanks to local community businesses and fundraisers. We thought maybe if we could get anybody here and raise a little bit of money, it would be a success. And already we have, it's overwhelming. What a great support system the Quad Cities is. And, and I'm really happy to be part of, of this, helping the family for uh, Carrie Olson. But still, no answers. And as the days ticked on, the news of Carrie seemed bleak, but the police and her family continued asking for anything from anyone to step forward, like her cousin, Aaron Howley. We know um, people may think that the information they have is insignificant, or they may think it's too late to give it, or that the police already know. But please don't, you know, don't assume that that information is already known, or that it's too insignificant to report. It wasn't until April, and a couple hundred miles away, that answers would start to arise. A landowner in Minnesota found the body of an adult woman in a wooden area on his property in the late afternoon on Saturday, April 5th. The body had only been there for less than two days, according to the Dakota County Sheriff's Office. Davenport police were aware of this case developing and were keeping a close ear to the ground to see if this could be the big break that they were waiting for. And three days later, it was confirmed the body of Carrie Olson had been found. Investigators later said that her body was only 15 yards away from the road, but the combination of heavy snow and her body being below the tree line could have hidden her in plain sight. Neighbors nearby, stunned by the news. Yeah, we walk it quite a bit, especially when it, you know, snow started melting and it's got nice out. We take the kids around there and my wife jogs around there and Nothing, never noticed anything. We found out she was from Iowa. 
that's, you know, that's, that's even more shocking. Authorities in Minnesota also stated Davenport investigators had previously visited the community where Olson's body was found, which was just outside Hastings, Minnesota, in January. Dakota County deputies said once they found Olson, they shared the information in a national crime information database, which is when Davenport police picked up the signal. They were in the process of doing a follow-up uh, looking for the victim in this case. Uh, they had uh, checked, uh, I believe they were checking an address or they had an area that they were, they were looking at, but other than that, uh, they were up here for a day and they left and we haven't heard anything since until this story broke. Carrie's funeral was held more than a week later in Davenport. The family asked the community not to donate flowers, but for memorials to be made to the Quad City Missing Persons Network that had worked so tirelessly to try to find Carrie. But there were still so many unanswered questions. How did she get to Minnesota? When did she die? How did it happen? And most importantly, who would go to such great lengths to do this heinous crime? Summer of 2014, more than six months after Carrie's disappearance and three months since her body was found, police finally made an arrest in the case. 29-year-old Timothy McVeigh, Carrie's ex-boyfriend. Witnesses described the moment he was confronted by police at his work that July morning. He was on a ladder, propped up there, and they asked him to step off the ladder. And when he stepped off the ladder, they put handcuffs on him. He acted very surprised. Really? He didn't say a word. He just stepped down and got cuffed and left. In all honesty, though, he should not have been surprised. McVeigh was spotted on that gas station surveillance camera the day after Carrie was missing with her car. He was questioned, according to family, in the early morning hours of January 3rd, but then released. The family had tried to reach out to him in the early days of the investigation, but was told he was in Las Vegas, so he had to have known that police would eventually catch up to him. McVeigh would then make his first court appearance the very next day. Morning, Mr. McVeigh. We are here in 14 CF 589, People versus Timothy McVeigh. Mr. McVeigh, you were here a number of years. It's followed by a three-year period of mandatory supervised release. There is no probation. Dressed in a yellow jumpsuit, handcuffed and shackled by the ankles. When the judge dismissed him, not going to lie, he looks kind of smug and arrogant. Briefly glancing at the crowd, he's not sad, he's not scared. He kind of seems confident, and I can't imagine sitting there and seeing that. Those with the Quad City Missing Persons Network and even prosecutors talked with News 8 about the somewhat stunning development. I won't say a happy feeling, but a good feeling, then a sad feeling because of all the heartache, you know, everything that this gentleman has caused if he is the guilty one. The now former Rock Island County State's Attorney, John McGeehee, also talked about the development staying in close contact with the family. This is a very, very difficult time in their life, and I can tell that it really is taking its toll. They are um, uh, overwhelmed by this whole process. It wasn't just a difficult time for the Olson family, which I can't imagine was an extremely rough time, but for others as well. For instance, the other ex-girlfriend of McVeigh, Katie Smitty. She told News 8 she started dating him after his relationship ended with McVeigh nearly a year before Carrie went missing. Their relationship was on and off again, probably due to his alcohol use. Smitty saying that he would drink. And if he had any sort of hard alcohol, he lost all control of himself. 
Smitty said after McVeigh would drink, he'd be physically abusive, pushing, slapping, and sometimes even choking her against a wall. And she told News 8 that she left town after another messy, drunk incident, but returned once she heard about the disappearance of Carrie. Even after blocking him online and on her phone, on one particular day, she decided to answer, to try to get answer, and later giving many of those answers to police. I knew he was going to be angry when I gave them the Gmails, you know, and uh, so I was always really nervous. You know, I, I just felt relieved that I don't have to look over my shoulder anymore, and I feel happy for her family knowing that they'll get justice for Carrie. An official death certificate for Carrie was issued in late July, but only listed the manner in which she died as a homicide and the cause by unspecified means. Even after News 8 pressed to find out this information, none would be released at this time. In the meantime, Tim McVeigh would plead not guilty in the case, and it would be delayed several times when the trial would finally begin in February of 2015. McVeigh's attorney tried to suppress some evidence, even calling for the case to be dismissed altogether, but the trial would begin one week early, no less, in early June 2015. Tim McVeigh would sit in the defense side of the courtroom with three privately hired attorneys by his side to fight the case against him. Forensic scientist Sarah Walbridge-Jones was the first witness to take the stand. She had to step up first due to a scheduling conflict for the trial, and so she talked about carpet samples found on Carrie's hair, and she stated that the carpet matched that of carpet found in Tim McVeigh's apartment. The known sample, the Berber construction sample that I designated item 23G, corresponded in all of the tests that were run with the clump item 16 that was found in the victim's hair. Considering that's one of the aspects of uh, where Ms. Olson worked is a carpet company, um, I think that's going to play into uh, that type of a testimony. When the trial really got underway a week later, both of Carrie's parents took the stand on day one and two of the trial, and the two talked about receiving no answers from not only their daughter, but from McVeigh himself. Carrie, I need answers. I love you. Your family and friends are all so worried. Kobe needs you. It misses you so much, Mom. If Carrie is with you, she needs to call home. The police are aware of what's going on, both in Rock Island and Danport. It's all over Facebook, and we called the FBI today. You've been positive positively identified on camera. So are you frustrated with Tim McVeigh's response to you at this time? Very. Why? I'm not getting any information. I think I probably said, my daughter's missing and you were the last one with her or something like that. Or may, can you please help us find her? Day three of the trial, a team of Minnesota deputies take the stand. The ones who found Carrie's body, recalling what they found that late April afternoon. It was a completely unclothed female that was laying there. Um, my impression was by the way she was laying that it appeared somebody had dragged her there. Uh, why, why do you say that? Um, her hands were both over the top of her head. It just seemed like whoever put her there was in a hurry to get her dumped there, I guess. Days later, medical examiner Owen Middleson would speak saying he could not conclude the manner in which Carrie died. But prosecutors would ask if her death was consistent with someone sitting on her chest and covering her mouth to stop breathing. 
He answered yes and gave this explanation. Burking stems from individuals in early, I believe, eight, 19th century Scotland of all places, where um, two individuals would go out and murder people by sitting on their chest until they stopped breathing to provide bodies to anatomy labs for educational purposes and they would be, get paid to provide those bodies. And one of those individuals' last name was Burke and that's where the term comes from. It is my opinion that Ms. Olson was deposited at the recovery site no later than March 11th, 2014, but likely much closer to the date of last known alive of December 28th, 2013. That last woman speaking was Gretchen Dabbs, a Southern Illinois University forensic anthropologist, testifying how long the body had been in the woods. So remember Tim's ex-girlfriend, Katie? She took the stand later in the trial, about day nine, uh, recounting a time she says something similar happened to her. I woke up to him sitting on my chest and bouncing up and down and telling me to wake up and I couldn't breathe. And eventually he got off my chest, and then the next day he said he was just plain. Uh, hello, my name is Tim. I read an article, and the description of the missing body or the bottom that you found matches uh, or seems to match a girl that is missing from Quad City. Please call me back. Um, Prosecutors say that last audio bite that you just heard is from Tim McVeigh himself leaving a voicemail for a Minnesota detective not too long after Carrie's body was found and, as you heard, wanting to be helpful. But even his family said he wasn't helpful, more helped than anything at all in life. He was an unemployed handyman. His mother said she fired him once from working at her place. His father describing on the stand he had no driver's license, no car, and relied on his parents for money. We helped him uh, make house payments. We. Uh paid his electric bill from time to time. While McVeigh was unemployed, he was the karaoke king at a bar in West Davenport. He ran the show Friday and Saturday nights, and his rendezvous would be the subject and part of his trial. Witnesses say when he was single, he had a steady stream of ladies, but when he was with Carrie one night, a bartender testified he got angry and physical with her. Tim noticed something going on. He left his karaoke DJ stand and walked over towards the restroom. At that point, he pressed Carrie up against the wall with his left forearm. Where was his left, left forearm against her body? Uh, on her neck. I love their daughter very much. I, I love her. I don't want to marry her. I don't want to have a family relationship with her, but I do love her. She, she so is, you wouldn't hurt her? Awesome. Yeah, of course, I would Did you hurt her? I did not hurt her, absolutely not. So this soundbite that you just heard is Tim McVeigh. He's being questioned by Davenport police, all on camera and no lawyer present, and a bit chatty, talking about Carrie. Anything you want to know? She gave me her debit card. She said, go to the IH Mississippi ATM and get out $400. The original plan, he says, was for her to drive him to Minnesota to catch a flight to Vegas with his new girlfriend. But Carrie bailed and loaned him her car, and he dropped her off at her house. But... Even the officer even pointed out to Tim that his story just didn't add up, but he sticks with it. I asked you about getting gas. Uh, you said she was with you. I said, she was with you and you got gas? You said, yeah, she was with me. Okay, now you just told me 
that she was not with you. I meant with as in I hadn't dropped her off yet. Well, I, I so, asked you if, if she was there in the car yeah. when you were getting gas. And you said yes. I apologize okay. for that. Doesn't add up to the mere fact as yes, last used her debit card, last one seen her, last one that talked to her, you got her car. I totally understand this, and that was not pre-planned. This was some a choice she made. He was a different person from when I seen him in January. I noticed his hands were shaking. I even noticed that his knees were shaking, um, and his voice was cracking. Just totally different than from January. That's lead detective for the Rock Island Police Department, Tina Noe, taking the stand on day 11 of this trial, describing the day that they handed McVeigh a search warrant for his home. The defense really took jabs at the detectives in this case on this specific day, questioning the lack of physical evidence, how the search warrant was handled, and why fingerprints weren't taken. We were prepared to lift prints if we found the scene of a crime there, and we didn't. This was the same day the state Ress's case on this trial. Now, a lot was left out of the 11 days of testimony, 51 witnesses taking the stand, but this is pretty much the summary. And as you heard, little physical evidence links McVeigh to this case. No murder weapon, no true cause of death. Prosecutors heavily relying on cell phone records, security tapes, text messages, and testimony from McVeigh's ex-wives and girlfriends to connect all of these dots. And prosecutors said that at that time, they were confident in what they laid out. And the defense stating that they only presented circumstantial evidence and even pointed the finger at Carrie's boyfriend at the time, but nothing links him. I know that they're trying to do the whole beyond a reasonable doubt thing, but that accusation was kind of left field. And the defense would ultimately not bring any more witnesses to the stand, not even him himself. You are electing not to testify, is that correct? That's true. And has anybody promised, threatened, or forced you to get you to do that? No. Both the prosecution and the defense made one last case to the jury on July 14th, 2015, nearly a month after the trial began. And three days later, Tim showed no emotion as the judge said all the evidence fits and points to McVeigh. She was dead at your house. I don't know how you did it, but you did it. She didn't die of natural causes. She didn't die because she just passed out or whatever. You did something to her. Working, choked her, put a bag over her head. Like I said, there's a lot of ways to do it without leaving a trace. That I'm finding you guilty of count one murder, count two concealment of a homicidal death. While the defense stated they were stunned by the verdict, Carrie's parents knew in their heart and in their own investigation that Tim was their prime suspect. In October of 2015, Tim would return to the Rock Island County Courthouse, continuing to proclaim his innocence. Judge Mearsman, I did not kill Carrie Olson. I adored her as a person, as a friend, and as a confidant. Years of dating any girlfriends, I have never, never been a violent or abusive person. He has slithered his way through life by preying on women, even if it leads to murder. That's Carrie's mom telling the court how she really feels about Tim, in a sense, to his face. Such a monster does not deserve freedom and has no business walking our streets at any time. Tim was emotionless when he found out he was guilty months prior. He would be again expressionless when he found out that he would be sitting in a prison cell for the next 45 years. 
Weeks later, a judge would deny the request from McVeigh's team of lawyers to reconsider the sentence. But like I said in the beginning of this episode, McVeigh will spend his life behind bars until 2054. In a statement from the Rock Island County State's Attorney, they stated, quote, Hopefully the appellate court's decision will mark the end of this painful chapter in their family's experience and begin the road to healing.